midterm elections are a proving ground for any president, and Donald Trump is no different. The 2018 midterm election was a major test for his presidency. Good morning. Democrats won the House of Representatives. Republicans held on to the Senate. What do those midterm results tell us about the state of this country? Listeners of NPR's Morning Edition woke up to this on November 7th. President Trump now has to work with, or alongside, or against a House led by Democrats. What are the prospects for bipartisanship? I'm Stephen. In Iowa, the results were mixed for the Republicans and Democrats. The GOP held on to the governor's mansion, and Democrats flipped two of the state's four congressional districts. Iowa's Democratic Party chairman says the Trump administration is setting off a new wave of activism. The excitement of Democrats has gotten a lot easier. We're seeing Democratic groups pop up in places that you wouldn't expect. But Iowa's Republican Party chair says he's feeling good. I mean, we are in a place where if you look at poll after poll after poll, where our base in the rural areas is holding with this president. I'm Kate Payne. I'm Clay Masters. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. The field of Democratic candidates is scrambling to unseat President Trump. Here in Iowa, Troy Price is the Democrats' chair. He has to not pick favorites and welcome some two dozen candidates to the state. This outstanding field of presidential candidates demonstrates the amazing diversity of our party. Jeff Kaufman had that responsibility last caucus cycle as the chair of the Republican Party. This time around, he can show a little more support for for one person. We have a president that believes in Iowa. We have a president that loves Iowa. But at the end of the day, both Price and Kaufman can agree on one thing, keeping Iowa first in line in picking presidents. I think they do a really good job of communicating together why this process is so special and unique and what it offers not just to Iowa, but to the country as a whole. We'll talk with the chair of Iowa's Republican and Democratic parties about their takeaways from the 2018 midterms. And how that election is shaping the lead up to 2020. It's all coming up on Caucus Land. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. This is Caucus Land. I'm Kate Payne. I'm Clay Masters. We invited Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman and Democratic Party Chair Troy Price into our Des Moines studios in late June of 2019. When they sat down behind the mics, the political jabs were mostly in good fun. You know, we're making a play for Johnson County this year. I think Trump has a, I think <laughs> Trump has a real good. chance yeah. of, of winning that. Well, I think. you know, and us in Sioux County, I mean, we're going all in. As you would expect, the two disagreed on politics, but we wanted to focus on something they agree on. Why is it so important to have Iowa maintain this first-in-the-nation status, um, and, and why is it so important for you all to work together on both ends of the spectrum? This is the large part of what motivated me uh, in 2014 to stay on in 2016. I, I teach government. And I've taught uh, from sixth grade, and now I'm teaching college students. And I've always said, and I I truly mean this, uh, that if I'm going to look out over a sixth grade class and tell every young man and young woman in that that classroom that someday you could be president, then we have to start in Iowa. We have to start in a place like this. If you start in California or New York or Texas, you're going to block out 
the vast majority of people, whether it be the Republican candidates in 16 or the Democratic candidates in 20, those large states, that's like running for president of a small country. And so I firmly believe, in it, and I think it's tied up into the American dream, and it's, a, it's an American dream. I think both parties can agree on this slice of the definition of it, and that is everybody can attempt to be the president of this country. It has to start in Iowa. Jimmy Carter proved it early on, and I think every single election after that has reinforced that we got to start here. Troy? Uh, one, I completely agree with that. And two, you know, from a uh, more tactical standpoint, you know, this election, as we saw in 2016, and really every election for the last 20 years, the upper Midwest is a swing part of the country. And if you can do well in the Iowa caucuses, then you can win the White House. For our candidates, it's a it's a good process because this is a um, part of the country that has a lot of swing voters. Uh, in addition to that, like the way our process works, you have to build out a lot of organization. You have to go deep. You have to have 1,679 precinct captains all across the state if you want to be successful in the caucuses. So that requires you to not only build infrastructure to do that, but also requires you to dig deep for voters and go out there and have conversations. You can't just put it all on TV. You can't just put it all on mail. You have to go out there and talk to voters and meet them where they are and build those relationships with them. And through that process, the candidates get better. It's not just them talking to large rooms of people. It's them hearing from voters directly about what are the issues that are affecting them on the ground, healthcare, education, uh, jobs, etc. So our candidates are better for the process that we have here in Iowa. And um, that's why we fight so hard for it. And there is always, every four years, the people that trash the process for the Iowa caucuses and say that it's not representative of the nation as a whole. I mean, what is your answer to those questions or those uh, concerns that get lobbed towards Iowa every four years? A couple of things. First of all, be careful what you ask for. There's a lot of states think that they want this, and then they find out that, oh, there's no tax dollars going to this. You have to raise every single dime. You have to put on a world-class, transparent, verifiable, credible election that the entire world is going to second-guess every aspect of it. When you look at that, the financial burden, when you look at the at the burden, and I think it's a burden that we've embraced here in Iowa, so it, I, I think it's an honor at this point for our voters to be to be healthy in their skepticism and, and expect, like Troy said, expect that they're going to come and engage. There's a lot of states when you actually sit down and talk to their chairs, when I've talked to their chairs in the past, all of a sudden Texas says, oh, okay, didn't realize all of that. Even when I talked to New Hampshire, that you know, my colleagues in New Hampshire and in South Carolina, where they're part of the four carve-outs, and you compare what they have to do in terms of skin in the game, what we have to do, all of a sudden, it's not quite as alluring. It's fun to talk about being first in the nation. It's incredibly hard, hard, expensive work to be first in the nation. And of course, our our, our folks, our voters, in my opinion, always always rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. Well, and I will say that you know, on our side, our party has a lot of tremendous diversity, and it reflects the diversity that exists all across the country. And so, you know, wherever I go, I see you know diverse faces. I hear see I hear diverse thoughts everywhere I go with candidates, whether I'm at a candidate event, whether I'm at our party events, etc. And so, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to just say that the state of Iowa just absolutely does not represent the rest of the country when that is just absolutely not true. 
Troy, I would I would add I, I agree with Troy 100. percent I also when I talk to people I also say Iowa is one of four carve out states. If you add up New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, and Nevada, you have a you have a diversity in almost every mm-hmm. sense of that word. And if you look at the process that we have here with our carve out states in that way, I think we can I think we can make that case for diversity any place anywhere. Yep. Now with both Jeff Kaufman and Troy Price in the studio, we wanted to get their take on what the 2018 midterm election in Iowa tells us about 2020. Quick recap for all of you who are not up on your Iowa politics. Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, won her first full term. Together, we have accomplished so much, and Iowa is moving in the right direction. But you know what? We are just getting started. Reynolds was technically an incumbent. She became governor when her predecessor, Terry Branstad, was tapped by the Trump administration to become the U.S. ambassador to China. Reynolds had served as Branstad's lieutenant governor since 2011. And in 2018, Reynolds blocked a strong challenge from Democrat and businessman Fred Hubble. Female Democratic candidates did well in Iowa's 2018 midterm, too. And you have my promise that I will work my tail off every single day to make sure that the Iowans that Washington has clearly forgotten are heard very loud and clear. That's Representative Abby Finkenauer. Elected at age 29, she is one of the youngest women to ever serve in Congress. She defeated Republican incumbent Congressman Rod Blum in Iowa's first congressional district, widely called one of the most competitive House seats in the country. And you know, one thing is clear. Iowans are working incredibly hard. We're playing by the rules, but Washington doesn't have our back, and we deserve a heck of a lot better, don't you think? And now Congresswoman Cindy Axney knocked out a Republican incumbent as well winning Iowa's third congressional district by taking just one county, Polk, the home of the state's largest metro, Des Moines. She defeated Republican Congressman David Young. Iowa's fourth congressional district, a Republican stronghold and home to Congressman Steve King, nearly went Democratic, too. In one night, the state went from having one of four House seats in Democratic hands to three out of four. Meanwhile, Republicans hadn't just won the governorship, they picked up seats in the state Senate, too. The mixed results and cross-party voting of 2018 left many scratching their heads. Going back over the last three presidential cycles, many Iowans voted for Obama twice and then went for Trump. For people looking for signs from those voters in 2018, there aren't a lot of easy conclusions to draw. But Troy Price says his party's wins show Trump is vulnerable leading into 2020. We saw such tremendous energy in after the 2016 election. And it was that energy that helped propel us to the wins that we saw in 2018. Not only did we pick up two congressional seats, we picked up a statewide seat and we came incredibly close to sweeping all four congressional seats and beating Steve King up in the fourth district. And so there's just tremendous energy within our party. And that has spilled over, as you can see, when you folks are out at a events and stuff like that. You can see that even if it's not the most well-known candidate, there's still great crowds showing up. There's still people asking interesting questions. There's still a lot of conversation and energy in those rooms. And so uh, that is, uh, I think that you're going to continue to see that grow and build as we, as throughout this process, we get closer to the caucuses and more and more people are engaged in the process. And then beyond the caucuses, you know, that energy that we're going to build, we're going to be able to take that and, you know, we're building out our precinct level infrastructure 
infrastructure program right now and field program right now. But, you know, the thing that I'll point to is at the federal ballot last year, Democrats won by nearly four points when you take all four uh, congressional districts together. Uh, people are looking for change. And I think that's why you're seeing so much energy out there and so much enthusiasm out there. And I'm sure my uh, counterpart will disagree with me. But I think that that energy is what's going to carry us forward. And I think that's why we're going to have um, a good night on Election Day in 2020. In terms of 2018, we had a couple of things that were that uh, that we were uh, swimming upstream. One is the president's party historically always takes a hit. Um, and we've seen that we've seen that in throughout history. Uh, it's a, one of those things I even put on one of my uh, freshman government tests. And, and we saw, I mean, we saw that and we saw the importance of that. On the other hand, we also saw our state Senate actually grow its majority. Um, and I would, you know, you can look at Kim Reynolds' um, election that way, or you can also say running against someone that, uh, you know, had, had more resources than she did at a time when we were swimming upstream uh, and at a time when uh, rural Iowa uh, is, having to, uh, is, is having to put their trust in, in a tariff policy uh, from the president that Kim Reynolds was able to actually hold her way in the rural areas. I, I was heartened by that. Now, I'm not going to not going to tell you that I wasn't disappointed with the two losses in the congressional districts. Um, you know, in, in David Young's in David Young's loss, I mean, th- that candidate, remember, won one county. In Rod Blum's loss, the Democrat won four counties. I, I'm not necessarily saying those weren't losses. They were. And shame on me as the Republican chair if I don't try to reap some lessons from that. And I think the lessons that we have, it's kind of good news and challenging news. The good news is I think despite swimming upstream, our base has remained extremely firm in probably 85 to 90 of Iowa's counties. On the other hand, uh, we realize that we have to reach out and it's, and it's in, into the suburban areas. So those are some of the takeaways from 2018 for the state's Republican and Democratic Party chairs. After a quick break, we'll read in between the lines with an Iowa political scientist. Stay with us. If you like what you're hearing, please take a few seconds to like and share this episode. Use the hashtag caucusland. You can also visit caucusland.com to sign up for the latest news and updates sent to your inbox. High-quality journalism is more important now than it has ever been. If you've learned something today by listening to this episode, make a contribution now at iowapublicradio.org. It's your support that makes podcasts like Caucusland possible. It's Caucusland. I'm Clay Masters. And I'm Kate Payne. After Kaufman and Price left our studios, we invited Rachel Payne Caulfield in to talk about what we just heard. She's a political scientist at Drake University in Des Moines. She says what's so interesting about 2020 and the scramble to defeat Donald Trump is it shows just how divided the Democratic Party is. The Republican Party has been dealing with this cleavage for a little while, and they seem to have resolved that with the selection of Donald Trump. Whether they're all happy with that resolution is another question, but um, he emerged as a different kind of candidate for the party that kind of brought together the Tea Party and the social conservatives and the fiscal conservatives uh, in a unique way. 
The Democrats haven't had that moment, but we're seeing the same kind of purity tests. We're seeing the same kind of stretching the definitions of liberalism to their logical boundaries and kind of trying to figure out where the party wants to position itself going forward. And that's going to be the debate of 2020 as we go into the caucuses and then through the nomination process. Then we determine whether or not the party can reunify around a central figure. I don't think we know the answers to any of those questions yet. And maybe drilling in on what, how those divides might play out on caucus night. I mean, sketch out the particulars of if we truly have two dozen <laughs> contingencies, you know, two dozen candidates uh, and their supporters coming into a single room. I mean, what, is, what does that mean? Oh, gosh, it means a lot of things. <laughs> so when you see kind of the animations and the diagrams of how caucusing works, usually we're talking about Democratic caucuses. Democratic caucuses are far more procedurally confusing than Republican caucuses. Most people think they're exactly the same. They are not. Republicans have a pretty straightforward straw poll vote. Democrats are the ones that have this proportional representation system where you walk in and you get counted and then you have to move to a corner of the room depending on who you're supporting. First of all, with 23 candidates, there aren't that many corners to a room. So <laughs> <laughs> so that in and of itself will be a challenge. Uh, and then once everybody moves into their initial preference group, then they get counted to find out how many people are supporting each of the candidates. And you have to have 15 percent of the caucus attendees to be viable. When you have 23 candidates in a race and potentially more than 23, I mean, this could keep going. Um, but getting 15 percent could be really hard for these candidates, right? I mean, if they were to divide equally, we're looking at roughly 4 percent per candidate, um, which means none of them are viable. Uh, <laughs> so there will be some procedural issues along the way. This is why the second phase of voting then becomes so important, because in the Democratic caucuses, once you form those initial preference groups, um, any candidate who is not viable in that first round of voting, those people have an opportunity to move around the room and form new groups, join new groups, persuade people to come to their group. So that's where the interaction of the Democratic caucus is really interesting and fun to watch because that second round of voting, if you have a number of candidates who aren't viable, it's going to be interesting to see where those people go. Uh, so who is their second choice and or are they able to persuade people to come and support their candidate? So just kind of logistics of these caucuses are going to be really challenging for these chairs who lead the caucuses. And it's important to recognize that those chairs are all volunteers. Uh, they are not party officials. They are not state officials. They are volunteers who have said to the party, sure, I'll run a caucus. And then they go and they learn something about how to run a caucus. And then they run a caucus. These, these sorts of procedures are going to be really, really challenging. Even with no serious Republican challenger to President Trump's candidacy, the GOP will hold a caucus to keep the tradition alive and to energize their supporters. And of course, there's a lot riding on the Democratic side. And now there is something new this year that the Iowa Democratic Party is calling the virtual caucuses. This is by far the largest change that we've seen to the caucus process since its inception. One of the biggest complaints about the Iowa caucuses has been that they're not inclusive enough. That armed service members deployed overseas can't participate. 
that working people or folks with kids don't have time for the hours-long political tug-of-war that is a caucus. In early 2019, the state party here announced a new fix, a way for Iowans to use their phones to caucus virtually from wherever they are. Here's Troy Price again, chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. They will have one of six opportunities to participate. They, it'll be a dial-in system, most likely, unless someone needs an accommodation. They'll be able to rank up to five choices for president. It's going to have a similar feel to a caucus. This isn't going to be, you know, you're on the phone for five minutes. This is going to take a little bit of time, uh, just like caucuses do. The virtual turnout will be weighted to account for 10 percent of the total turnout on caucus night. We asked Rachel Payne Caulfield about these changes and what they'll mean for the process. We don't really know what these virtual caucuses are going to look like yet. I would challenge anybody to tell you exactly what these virtual caucuses will look like at this point. Um, and and so the Democratic Party has a challenge as well. Not only do they have to pull off the logistics of the in-person caucuses, which can be challenging, but now there's this extra layer of the virtual caucus. And the stakes are so high in this cycle. That's right. All eyes are on the Democratic Party in 2020. And so this change uh, will be the focus of a lot of news coverage, a lot of commenta- commentary and perspectives on whether or not this new process is fair, whether it's transparent, whether it actually solves some of the complaints that it was designed to solve. So here we are. We're caught up to 2020. After this episode, we'll be talking about the current cycle. And where things stand so far in the lead-up to the 2020 caucuses. Before we go, we're ending this show with a segment called Only in Iowa. We're collecting stories from the caucuses. This time, Republican Party of Iowa Chair Jeff Kaufman and Democratic Party Chair Troy Price share stories about memorable caucus nights. Price remembers his first caucus from 2004. It was the Farmington Precinct in Cedar County. The caucus location was actually someone's living room out in the middle of the country. Uh, Now, this doesn't happen as much anymore because the caucuses have gotten so big that we can't do them in living rooms uh, as much as we used to. But it was such a unique experience to be able to sit with my grandpa and sit with about 35 people debating whether or not, you know, Howard Dean should or should not be the president. uh, And then come to find out he didn't even uh, get anywhere near as close as we all thought he would. Um, It demonstrated the community building that actually comes from this process and how much camaraderie is built by the party at the grassroots level because of the caucuses. I, too, was a part of the Farmington, don't forget the second part, Farmington Sugar Creek. Oh. Because I'm from Sugar Creek Township. (laughs) As it happens, Price and Republican Party Chair Jeff Kaufman are from the same county and caucused in the very same precinct. And we had our caucus in 92. And so we went, and it was a house, and it was the middle of nowhere. And it was a fairly new house. They just refurbished it. Brand new carpeting. Opens the door late, and a dairy farmer comes in. And his boots are dripping with cow manure. And the look on the owner's face when she saw that, it was like, oh, my Lord, can I remove him? And I, you know, not if he's registered Republican. But that night, honestly, this farmer stood up. God bless him. Uh, He probably gave the best or the second best speech that entire night. That's the Iowa caucuses. Okay, we want to hear your only in Iowa stories, too. Give us a call if you have one at 888-893-2036. Just leave us a voicemail. 
Caucus Land is produced by myself, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, and John Pemble, with production support from Jason Burns, Sean McLean, and Nick Brinks. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmidt and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio News.